and good morning and welcome to today's podcast. Um, today we'll be joined by Jeannie Hodges, who is the Director of Economic Outcomes uh, for the NDIS. Uh, hopefully the tech will work for us. Whoops, it's, and I just put the wrong little bit of information in there. So it won't be a second. Jeannie is the Director of Economic Participation for the NDIS. Um, and will be joining us to discuss the NDIS and employment funding um, and the direction of employment within the NDIS. Um, please bear in mind that what we discussed today is relevant to the current settings of the NDIS and the current funding. It isn't meant to be a direct uh, advice on your specific situation. You should always seek um, clarity with um, an advisor or your plan manager. And at the same time, just remember the, the information may, be, may not be relevant in 12 months time because obviously we know things are changing, funding changes, policy changes. So just remember that what we talk about today is relevant right now and may not be so in 12 months time. So hopefully the um, tech will work for us and uh, Jeannie will join us in the next few seconds. I think it's appropriate to have this discussion um, today. Uh, employment uh, is an important um, aspect of a uh, full uh, life in society today and with the new funding um, guidelines just released uh, going forward for the 2021 year it's appropriate we have a discussion about some of what I think are some really interesting aspects of the funding guide for the next 12 months. Um, I think one of the things from my perspective um, about the NDIS is it's it does provide significant flexibility for people to pursue employment. And given where we find ourselves in society, uh, that's in relation to the, the past six months, I guess, of the COVID situation, it's it's probably good to have a fair bit of flexibility in, in what we do in terms of pursuing employment. So we'll see what happens. Um, hopefully the um, tech will work, which we tested earlier on, um, and it will, happen quite nicely for us. Um, yeah, so any tick of the clock, Jeannie will join and we'll be in business. So I, I think if you look at the, the current guidelines that are sitting out there for employment, one of the things that, that we haven't done as a society is we haven't used them in any real innovative ways. We haven't used, looked at it and gone, you know what, we can do things differently. And obviously for some people, there's a notion that, well, you know, what can you do? It says this, but realistically, you can be quite imaginative um, and really have a good long look at it and go, this is how I want to pursue employment. Um, and I think that's an important aspect of it. And I think it's one that we should explore again today. Um, Jeannie has just entered the studio and I will just press the connect button. And good morning, Jeannie, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Peter. How are you today? Not too bad. Hopefully I scared people off with my two minutes of introduction. <laughs> good, good. Jeannie, I think it's, a, it's with a new pricing guide coming out, just come out, and of course with the last four or five months of us all locked up at home and the impact mm. on business, it's probably not a bad time to talk about the future of employment and particularly for people with disabilities and what they should think about with their, their NDIS funding going forward because obviously the prospects uh, or the opportunities have changed markedly with significant numbers of businesses um, going into hibernation. So I guess the question 
a nice place to start from my perspective would be, has the NDIS been looking at this going, okay, where do we go given the current circumstances we find ourselves in? Mm, mm. Yes, Peter. I suppose the short answer is that to that we, we plough on regardless. Um, you will remember that last November the NDIS launched the Participant Employment Strategy. Um, that was the sort of culmination of um, a lot of the work that had happened through a, a task force that was uh, a co-task force last year with the uh, Department of Social Services and the NDIS to really look at how we could best support NDIS participants using uh, both NDIS supports and, of course, the mainstream disability employment services system. So that strategy had a number of activities um, and a number of outcomes to achieve. So we haven't paused on that, um, regardless, as you said, of the circumstances at the moment where um, many people are facing an uncertain future. Um, we still need to make sure that people with disability and NDIS participants are right at the centre of um, uh, understanding what their options and opportunities are for themselves, but also with business. Um, and so, yes, one of the, you mentioned the, the recent price release. Um, that is obviously very standard agency business, but within that price release was a different way that um, uh, participants can purchase employment supports for day-to-day -day support in the, in the workplace. Um, and we can talk a bit more about that in detail, but that was a fairly significant move that was part of the strategy deliverables, part of the task force to move to that point where we were um, opening up the employment opportunities for more people. So short answer is we're ploughing on ahead, Peter, and um, we need to make sure that we really connect closely with the DSS, um, who obviously are doing a lot of work in the larger strategy policy pieces, and also to make sure employers are really aware of what NDIS participants can bring to the table for their job. Yeah, look, I have to say when, I, when the guy came out, I looked for it, I was pretty excited um, simply because I, I saw a broadening of, of mm. the capacity of what you could and couldn't do. It, it, it's almost as though it was signalling that, guess what, you can do a little bit more and be a little bit more flexible. And here's a few more clues as to what you can do. Um, and when I look at the areas where around workplace assistance under the, the capacity building and finding mm. and keeping a job, that's expanded. Mm. And, and, you know, the fact that it now includes things like workplace counselling, really starts to tell me that we're starting to look at the bigger picture around employment, not simply finding a job, but how do we address things that come up that may mm. trigger an exit from a workplace? Mm. Um, uh, to me, that's 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 really quite exciting um, to look at those extra supports. And I thought, you know what, this is quite good. But there's something else that I saw in the guide, which, which really impressed me, um, something that I hadn't paid much attention to was the addition of psychosocial recovery coaches, mm. which signaled to me that we're really starting to think about, okay, people that have episodic disability that go in and out of workplaces, there's now additional supports around, around that type of condition that mm. signal that we're going to support long-term employment and careers. I guess the question, you know, out of that is, how are people going to use that? Are, we going to be, are they going to be innovative enough? Um, does the agency have some you know, thoughts on how do we go forward using these innovative supports? Yes, yes. So, Peter, I'm probably not best placed to talk about the specific details of the psychosocial recovery approach. Um, but uh, it, more generally speaking, I can say in terms of the agency, and you're right, in, the, in their price guide, it, it's it signalled a sort of an expansion 
of the sorts of supports and services that a participant can get in a range of settings and workplaces. Um, so I think probably, um, of course, acknowledging that we have a mainstream disability employment services system that is available to all Australians, including NDI's participants who meet those eligibility criteria. What we do know, though, is that for a start, there are some of our participants who don't actually meet that criteria. Um, and then there, of course, are some participants that might take advantage of the of the DES system. But for many, there are some complementary supports that need to sort of wrap around that. And, and this also was a bit of a focus of the task force last year to better identify what are the sort of the core things that are available through mainstream. What are the things that the NDIS could perhaps wrap around and enhance? <clears throat> and one of the things you've rightly picked up is that uh, career progression. We heard very clearly through the consultations in 2019 that when people with disability uh, we spoke to said, you know, I can get a job, but it's really difficult to progress to a career. Uh, so that was one of the things, yes, that we, we certainly um, paid some attention to. What are the things that can wrap around and enhance and support the DES system, as well as what are those unique things that the NDIS can fund, and particularly for those people with higher support needs in the workplace, the expansion of opportunities, um, not only to maintain work in an ADE, if that's what you're working, but for many other people to think about that level of support in an alternate setting is a, is a pretty big shift. Yeah, I, I think that's that's re really quite an excellent you know position where we're heading in the sense that what we're starting to create is a holistic employment system that that addresses everything. Um, it's not simply the NDIS is over here and the ADEs over here and the DES is over there, but it's part of a a bigger employment ecosystem, and at the same time that focus now on careers rather than a job because obviously you know, where you talk about one of the supports in workplace assistance about explore what work uh, would mean mm. for them through, say, a discovery process. Mm. That's very much a long-term focus. So all of a sudden we're going, let's just not find a job, but let's find, think about a career, which means employment longevity for many people. Mm. Mm. That's absolutely right. And I think one of the things that we, we learned through the consultation and the strategy and the task force is for many of our participants now, I guess, recalling that many of our participants have intellectual disability and autism. That's probably our primary um, sort of disability uh, cohort in the agency. Um, that sort of pre-vocational work, that capacity building and the discovery that you talk about is really essential. Um, and, and certainly while the DES system has capacity for some of that, not typically to the level of intensity that our participants need who might never have thought about work before. So you're right, we're talking about, um, you know, building an entire cultural shift, not only just sort of the enabling funding that sits beneath that. So how do we uh, support more uh, people, particularly young people leaving school, to think about work, to have an aspiration for work? How do we grow that aspiration through solid sort of uh, well-supported experience that give people a, an idea of what work means for them? And we sort of talk about building that vocational identity, you know, seeing yourself as a future worker. That's something that needs to be done, obviously, before anybody's uh, going to be more actively involved in the in the labour force um, and actively seeking work. So that's an essential part of the focus of the strategy and certainly of the work that we're doing now. Um, and yes, you're right, um, the opportunities for um, uh, supports at work we know that the DES system offers those. If people have come through the DES system, 
<clears throat> but essentially there is also opportunities we know that for capacity building when someone is at work that may not be able to be met by that system and that's certainly to do uh, a, a good example of people with autism in the workplace. Um, it's, it's about building the capacity of that person but it's actually uh, also some intensive work uh, with the with the ecosystem around that person, other staff, uh, their colleagues, to be able to understand the best way to work for that person, to work with that person in their organisation. Um, that's a really important thing to do for, for job sustainability and um, can be a focus. I, I think it also illustrates when, when I look at the where we're evolving as an employment system, you, you'll, we start to see people will naturally gravitate to different parts of the system depending on the nature of their disability. It's, mm. you know, as you say, the, the larger cohort now in the NDIS are people with intellectual and, and uh, autism. So, you know, we're probably potentially talking about people with higher support needs mm. um, as opposed to maybe people with less complex, lower support needs. Mm. They would probably tend to gravitate more towards, say, the DES system, which is more aligned with people that are a little bit more closer to being job ready, so to speak, as opposed to people at the the other end of, of the continuum, which need, shall we say, a longer term, more gentler support to pursue employment. And I think, I think we could probably see people at that part of the, the juncture gravitating towards the NDIS type supports and people at the other end the spectrum gravitating more towards the DES end, which simply illustrates the different skill sets that are required and the different funding that's required for those individuals. That's right. And it can also not, not necessarily be an either or situation, Peter. So certainly we know that there's a lot of sort of capacity building, as you said, for people who haven't thought about work, who have high support needs more generally throughout um, uh, you know the things that they tr their goals they're trying to achieve. Um, those that obviously can make good use of the DES system immediately, um, and certainly some of our participants that we support, um, we would hope that they would um, also move on to test their access to the DES system to be able to use those supports and services at the right time for them. That's really important. Uh, so I think yes, the, you're right. Um, a number of our participants, and we, we know that historically participants with those higher support needs. So I guess the distinction that you've sort of drawn there a little bit, Peter, is thinking about the sort of the level of independence of people once they've get a, got a job. So we know that um, the people who have got work, um, there's a reasonable, you know, obviously there's an expect expectation of reasonable adjustment from the employer. Uh, certainly, if they've come through the DES system, there's some sort of ongoing supports that might be available for them there. But for our participants that really need that day-to-day -day coaching and mentoring and ongoing support, um, to date they've um, really been able to work in an Australian Disability Enterprise or an ADE. Um, all those participants are transitioning, their funding's transitioning to the scheme. We're very, working very closely with them and those ADEs to um, make sure that they've got the supports they need to continue working. But we actually do know that there's a, a whole lot more participants who can and want to work, but either through choice or through circumstance haven't been able to have the opportunity to work in an ADE uh, in the past. And so they're really, this is this expansion I guess we talk about, is that what the NDIS does and its foundation principles, you know, we basically just put the money in a person's pocket through their plan. We don't dictate where they spend that money and that's a really significant shift from, I guess, the older sort of program-based funding that, that occurred before the NDIS. So if we have money in, a person has money in their pocket for supports at work, they can choose where to purchase those supports and in what context. We don't dictate that. 
So I guess we will start to see a natural growth, as you said, a tendency for people to look beyond what has already been and realise that there are opportunities for different sorts of experiences. Uh, and we certainly want to encourage our NDIS providers and employers to start really thinking innovatively about what does this mean for them in terms of service provision and for employers, what does it mean in terms of what people can bring to the table through an NDIS plan to support them at work. Yeah, and I think we're starting to see some of that. And in my view is that, and certainly with the organisations that I've spoken to, there's a certain view that that because of the the current um, COVID situation, it's forced them to radically think about, okay, what are we delivering and how do we deliver it? And it, it, it sits quite comfortably with people starting to realise that I can do whatever I like with this money to pursue employment. I know I don't mm. have to do it the way I used to. And I guess that's probably leads to a, a different aspect of employment supports in the sense that, you know, you need to start thinking about um, developing those skills for self-advocacy and self-determination so people can actually start to really grasp the idea that I'm in control, mm. I have the choice, I can do this the way I want. And, and it, it, interestingly, it harks back to something that, that someone said to me many years ago about when the NDIS started, which was, you know, as long as you don't do anything illegal and don't do anything that'll harm the client, you can really think quite laterally about how mm. you support a person to pursue their career. And when, you know, and it's that starts to sort of rattle around in my head and go, you know what? We need to get people to start to think very differently about mm. their employment supports. Uh, and I think that's probably a very difficult proposition for a lot of people who are used to having services delivered to them rather than go and find yes. the services. Yeah, that's right. Look, I think it's a, it's a combination approach, isn't it? Um, I certainly know I've, I've been in the NDIS now. This is my eighth year, so I guess you could call me one of the veterans, you know, having started at, the, at one of the trial sites. And I certainly saw the shift in the trial site over those three years with participants suddenly realising the opportunities they had to, to self-direct their supports in a whole range of areas. It was a really exciting uh, thing to see after many years of people almost being too scared to question what they were getting for fear of losing their funding. And so, um, yes, I think that we, we will certainly, it's, a, it's such a pillar of the scheme um, that people, uh, choice and control, I mean, that's what it's all about, isn't it? It will take a while. And I think for us, we recognise that while there is um, certainly as much as we can do to give participants all the information they need to be able to make really good informed choices, and that's certainly part of the strategy as well, we equally need to look at providers and service providers and say, well, what can you now do differently? What is the evidence of the suggests of what will actually work for the for the people you're working with, and what could you try and do differently? And and to begin to respond to the demand as participants say, well, I'd like to try this to be able to be free enough to be able to shape something around that for a truly individualised service. Uh, we're getting there, but I think it's a, it's probably still in early days for employment. We see some very bright sparks. We see some really good service. Um, services happening and we see some really good results starting to emerge in some different ways. So we're certainly keeping an eye on all of those. Let's let's talk about one area which, in my view, um, and certainly uh, we had Trevor Parmenter on last week and he talked about the area of transitions. And and to me, that's still very a muddy, a very muddy area in the sense that we still hasn't, haven't grasped what transition looks like. And, and maybe there's some, it, it may well simply be because 
we're trying to do something within the education system, which all of a sudden means we're dealing with another set of policies. But mm. I don't believe we do transition terribly well yet because the evidence suggests we start too late. Yes. Yes. So um, if you're talking particularly about the transition from, from, transition from school, school, to, school to work, to work, to work, yeah. to work yeah. so of course, yes, you, 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 you will have known that the, um, some years ago the agency began with an initiative called School Leave Employment Supports. It was really one of our first um, solid goes at really understanding what does funding look like in that transition space. Um, the, the, the sort of the service model for that was very much adapted from the New South Wales uh, Transition to Work program that had been running for a number of years. Um, and so that was um, through the agency and began as a trial and then was rolled out nationally. Um, but certainly um, the consistent advice that we've got over the last little, um, through the consultation of the strategy, um, as well as uh, is, is around that it, it, the school of employment supports is fantastic, but it actually starts a bit late, as you said, that often by the time people are in sort of midway or uh, through year 12, uh, the pathway has often been set. So we talked before about that exploration about building that sort of sense of a future worker and a vocational identity. We know for people that happens, you know, before people reach working age, but certainly once they reach working age. So that's why those 15, 16 year old kids are going out and getting their job at Maccas and Target and Safeway and all those places where you know we build those foundation skills and we know also that employers understand their role in that as being educators and so we want to make sure that um, all those kids with disability coming through the school system have those equal opportunities to build that early sort of work around myself as a worker uh, the strategy talks about there's a particular deliverable around the 14 to 25 year old cohort and that is exactly for what you've, designed, you've described, Peter. We need to start earlier. We need to keep going. And we know that by the time people reach 25, if they haven't got a job, uh, it can be really tough for them. So that's our focus area. And that's certainly something we'll be working on pretty hard over the next few months. It, it's, it's quite interesting, actually, in that area. I mean, because obviously it's something we've been fiddling with and, and our colleagues have for quite a few years. And over the weekend, I was actually... Um, offered an opportunity to have a discussion around starting a program in a basically from the first year in high school mm. uh, in, inside an independent school who want to do who want to change the focus of their education to vocational skills and and that might sound radical but weirdly enough it's actually what school's supposed to do which is pre prepare you for the workplace or further study so I think there's the there are some things popping up where people are starting to think, but I, but I, we're a long way behind the eight ball. It, it's been put to me that, you know, we've been doing transition for 60 years and we still haven't got it right. I, I think there's a really interesting opportunity with SLES funding if we can clearly define that if we're going to work with 14 to 25 year olds, then let's think about it rather than that final year of school, which are, mm -hmm. where, as you said, people have already, they've worked out to a degree. Well, they haven't really. Um, they kind of leaving school in the next 12 months and their focus is, okay, where am I going? Yeah, um, yeah. Well, SLES is certainly designed as, a, as, a, as an exploratory support. You know, it, it's not, it's, it's designed to, to capture people that, um, you know, might be thinking about what their next steps are. Um, you know, we, we know in the past when you left school, there was really only a few options. You, you either sort of uh, tried your, to test your access to the DES system, um, 
if you uh, if you had an ADE in your area, if you had a, you wanted to work and there was an ADE in your area, if you had those high support needs, you might be lucky enough to get a job there. Um, but if not, um, many young people sort of drifted into the more sort of non-vocational sort of activity-based programs. Um, and we do know that once that happened, once people were in those activity-based programs, uh, very rarely um, did they then you know, have a change and, and have opportunities for work later on. So I guess school level employment supports, you know, the transition is about building the bridge, isn't it? It's about um, making sure that people get the opportunity to think differently about it, to try and test, to build that bridge so that they're in a position where they're more able to sort of, um, you know, head towards that expected, as you say, right. educational work pathway. Could, could we... I mean, does that capacity exist now for us to start earlier than the last year? Yes, and I think this is I think this is one of the things that's um, um, I, I guess a bit um, unknown. I'm going to say unknown, but that's probably not the right word. But if we think about an NDIS and we think about a person's plan, then absolutely, if people have got supports in their plan, as you've said, um, they've got goals, they've got supports, they can use those supports in a flexible way to achieve those. So we probably have a lot of young people out there, you know, 15, 16-year-olds, that may have community participation supports, for example, in their plan. But they may be doing other things that are, um, that, uh, are perhaps not work-related. There could be some other really good important things they're doing, like, you know, getting support to go to the local scout group or joining some other sort of, um, you know, um, in inclusive activities. However, there are probably some that are, uh, are not quite sure how to use that or, or are tending to use that more for sort of... Um non-vocational or, or sort of more individuals, what would be great to see is how those community participation supports can be used to get people to thinking about work. You know, what does it look like to, to um, do a bit of um, extra work experience or perhaps to do some visits to host employers, to, to do some things that with that funding that would actually get them to build that understanding about what work would mean for them and to explore their skills. So if money's in a plan, there's nothing to stop someone doing it. But at the moment, I think they've got two things happening, that um, our staff are probably um, need to uh, think more about what are the supports and services that a person could access um, as they're developing their identity, but particularly from a participant point of view, really helping them understand how they can use those supports to achieve their goals in really flexible ways because there's probably um, still a bit of hesitancy from people to understand how to use them. Um, people get a bit frightened about, you know, being seen to be use them in a, in a way that the agency might dis disapprove, for example. Um, mm -hmm. So as you said, if it's not illegal and doesn't harm anybody and, and it's intended, the supports are intended to, to be um, directed towards a disability and the supports people need to achieve their goals, um, it's an outcome-driven scheme. It's the outcomes that are important. So that, that really points to being innovative and, and thinking a little bit more laterally in the sense that you've got those community supports in your in your package and you're in school and maybe you're 14. You, you could actually use those to start to explore your work identity mm. in the school system, um, mm. which could really enhance the, the potential workplace supports you might have later on. Mm. So it, it really points to the fact that you, I think you made the observation that people are a little bit terrified about how do I spend the money and will I get in trouble? But the reality is that if because it's outcome driven, if you can illustrate that I use this community support to start to explore what the future might look for me, 
And because you are engaging in the community, it was, let's face it, if you're going to the community and you're engaging with employers, you're engaging with the community. Mm. The fact is that what you probably end up with is people starting to go, you know, I wouldn't mind trying that sort of work. So we mm. start to get, we it potentially allows the school system to start to focus a little bit more clearly on if they want to pursue that, what do they need from us as, an, as educators to actually enable them to pursue that type of vocation? Mm, that's right. And I think you're right, you know, in the agency we have a number of things which we call interfaces. Uh, you know, essentially what that means is that there's ways that the NDIS funding and supports uh, integrate and meet uh, the mainstream supports available. And, of course, education is one of the, the, the mainstream supports available. Um, and so, yes, there, there has been discussion over the years, and I guess one of the one of the points that comes up every now and again is around work experience in schools. Um, we have heard that for many students with disability, particularly quite significant disability, um, you know, really don't get the opportunity for, for work experience in the same way that their peers might for lack of support in, in, those, in those experience placements. So whereas others might be going off to try and test what work looks like for them, uh, some of the students with disability end up in the library or indeed just staying home for the week. So while there is obviously the responsibility of the education department in terms of uh, supporting and initiating and um, uh, organising all those work experience placements, I suspect that for some students there's a point where the NDIS funds could uh, enhance or complement those to make sure that um, those experiences are really positive. But more so probably outside of those formal sort of education work experience placements, which still is only sort of a couple of weeks a year, is around what does it look like outside of school? What does it look like um, to explore some of that uh, as well? Because for many students with disability, they need more than a couple of weeks, as, as you'll know, Peter, to be able to fully explore what it means for them and to be able to try and test their skills and build confidence in their own abilities to be a worker. Absolutely. I, I, look, I, and again, it points to the fact that we're not looking thinking laterally and, and potentially it's not that we're not looking laterally or thinking laterally. It's just that we're not used to it. Mm. Um, and particularly families, they're not used to the idea that you can actually go a little bit further uh, as opposed to what they've always had in the past, which has been to a degree limited by the service provision. One of the things that that's, I'm staring at at the moment is the employment related assessment at counselling. And to me, when I look at that, it talks about you know, um, support a participant who may have had experienced traumatic injury or needs significant supports. Mm. That to me points to to being able to use things things like behaviour support in a workplace to to minimise the potential for triggers in the workplace. Mm. Because often, you know, if we transition someone from say an ADE or a more sheltered work environment or system to open employment. We don't know what the triggers might be in the workplace mm. and, and we know that often it's that absence of workplace counselling, uh, not just for the client but also for their employer that, that usually ends up exploding the employment. So I look at that and I think there's a potential way to use that laterally to support the individual in the workplace mm. to minimise triggers, mm. uh, to provide some counselling around workplace behaviours, uh, around things like um, how to support themselves and de-escalate. Mm. Can we use that type of support for that type of thing? 
Mm, yes, so certainly, Peter. I think, again, you know, on an individual basis, um, the, you know, I just mentioned about interfaces. We certainly have to be very cognisant about the interface with the Disability Employment Services System, who will also can do some of that work. But I think what you're talking about here is supports that are quite specialist. We're dealing about potentially sort of short bursts of intensive work to support a person. Um, and so for, in many instances, this might be an example of where the NDIS supports can really enhance and complement, even if someone is in the DES system, might really enhance and complement what the DES system, um, you know, is able to achieve or is, is contracted to achieve. And so you're right, um, what, we, what we do know that is for anyone starting in a job, it can take anyone up to six months to really feel settled in that job and what we call, you know, of course, the natural supports in a workplace to really grow, the friendships to grow, the companionship to grow, for people to really understand your work style, for you to be able to sort of feel confident about saying things uh, um, and interacting with your colleagues and offering ideas. That can take time for people and for someone with disability who hasn't perhaps had a lot of work experience or confidence in work. Um, it's a really important time, as we say, not only the person's uh, supported to, to grow in those early stages and to have the confidence in their job, but to support everyone around them. So the ecosystem around that person to support those people, to other staff, to understand, yeah, what's the best way to work with someone? If someone has been a bit triggered by something, what's the best way to manage that? So there's a lot of work to be done in the workplace, which will um, grow those natural supports, which means that going forward, the person um, was less likely to need those intensive supports afterwards, but you certainly need to put some intensive work into the beginning to make sure that um, that's sustainable in the long run. And as you say, not just for the participant, it's about for everyone around the participant that needs to think differently about a diverse workplace and what it means for them. Yeah, and look, and it, it highlights the fact that the, that the NDIS is an intervention um, mm. and an intervention is about effectively allowing a person to stay in the environment they want to with a minimal amount of, of disruption. Mm. One of the interesting things we're, that we're seeing now is in organisations we've been talking to, we're starting to see different approaches to employment. Um, you know, an approach in Western Australia where they're working with the employers to change that culture and then support the employers on the on you know, the onboarding process and then the building of natural support. So it's a kind of a whole of... Um, a whole of employment approach and then we're seeing others that are looking at taking a rehabilitation approach to it so rather than coming at it from the perspective of being employment consultants the baseline is well we're allied health people first and now we're going to do employment which is very much aligns with the the u.s rehabilitation model of mm. employment so there are little as you say you know um, green shoots popping up where people are looking at doing things differently um, and my view is that that the current um, COVID situation is probably going to accelerate more of that. Um, you know, and I guess this will then raise the question for a lot of people about, okay, how can I use this? And 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 we know that that some of the ADEs that are out there that have been marginal in the past are probably not going to to come back after the COVID because simply because yeah. their markets have disappeared. So it reinforces the fact that that providers need to start thinking laterally about their supports and how they use supports. And certainly it's important that clients realise that if the ADE doesn't come back the way it was, you do have a raft of really good supports that you can use in different ways to, to find your alternative pathway. 
Yeah, that's absolutely right, Peter. And I, and I think that we're yet to see what sort of what it would look like post-COVID. But as for many businesses, and ADEs essentially are, are just another business who um, many have struggled through this and, as you say, may not be able to come out the other end looking in the same way. Uh, so we will see some adjustment. Um, we're already seeing some Australian disability enterprises who are sort of looking at their future and saying, well, you know, we, we have a business to run and we can employ this many people meaningfully, but actually there's a lot more people we can help by taking our skills outside of our ADE and supporting people in other environments. And we we are starting to see that happen. And as we know, um, you know, people working in ADEs, those as employers, they're probably our most disability confident employers we have in Australia. They know how to work with people with disability in a workplace. So if they can um, take a lead in understanding what that would look like outside of their own context and demonstrating how they can support their peers, their other employ other employers in their community to do as they have done, um, bring people with quite significant disability into the workplace, but to bring it into um, uh, out of the ADE context and into other environments. Um, you know, that, that would be a, a great step to give many more participants the opportunity to work who um, at this stage probably really don't quite know how to go about it, um, particularly if, if they don't have any access to the DES system. Um, it's very difficult for them to understand until the recent pricing change how they could use their supports to, um, to achieve those goals. Going forward, I mean, obviously um, things have changed. We've, we've lost potentially and there's an extra million people unemployed and we've lost probably a million businesses at the moment. Mm. It, it, it will change the nature of how we deliver employment services. What do you mm. think, you know, it's crystal ball time, Jenny. <laughs> what do you think future the work looks like in the future for all the cohorts that we work with? Mm. Well, I, I think the two things that spring to mind, um, one is a very obvious one is that, um, for uh, going forward, there's an opportunity for businesses to really look at what they're doing, look at their practice models, look to the jobs that they offer. Job customisation and job carving is a bit of a lost art in Australia. I think many of them have been in the industry for the last sort of 20 to 25 years. Uh, will remember when um, there was a, a really big focus on uh, working with employers to really understand what, how aspects of their business could be carved out to, to provide a really meaningful and valuable role for a person with disability that was really highly attuned to their skills. So I think that probably what the NDIS brings back is the opportunity to have that focus again, to take the time it needs to do that and to work with employers to understand the opportunities that that brings and the benefits to their workforce to be able to do that. So I hope that this is an opportunity where people will be able to re-examine their, their jobs, their work, um, their new contracts, the contracts they've lost, what their business looks like now to also think about what would it look like to have a more diverse workforce and how can I break up some of the think jobs that I need done to better match the skills of all my employees, including those with disability. I think the other really interesting thing that's come out of this, and, you know, you and I are probably both sitting in our um, in our studies or our kitchen or our lounge room um, doing this interview and, and, of course, many, many people working from home. What we've seen is that um, it's been a great demonstration. Although the, you know, in Australia we've talked about flexible work conditions for many, many years, there are not many organisations that really um, have done it in the way that COVID forced us to do. Um, I know in our own organisation, you know, the productivity is still being great. The sense of connection with your team is still being great. So 
while um, we obviously all want to get back to work and to get back to some sort of routine, I think for all organisations there'll be a shift in how we think about the flexibility of work. And, and so I think for people with disability, um, who's often their, their barriers to work are some really uh, simple um, simple and extended it's just the transport to get to work for example you know uh, that can sometimes be just an enormous barrier to people with dis significant disability to be able to actually get to work and so to be able to have the opportunity to work from home I think will actually support many more people with disability uh, with options and opportunities because they can work in an environment where they can be at their most productive because their environment's set up for them at home so that would be an interesting shift to see how we harness that it's interesting you made the point of, of getting getting back to routine, but the, the reality is this is the routine. Um, yes. And I think that it would be a shame if we lost the, the the impetus that's been created by people working from home and, and some of the – I mean, it's no longer a novelty, it's a reality. Mm. I mean, I, I've been sitting at home for four months now, uh, which is highly unusual. Um, but it, it when I look around my, myself, my study where I'm working from, I didn't have to invest a great deal more to actually make this a more productive workplace. And certainly the use of software, um, which almost all of us have really interesting software we can use to work work remotely, which we've never really mm. used to its best degree. Now, all of a sudden, it's become second nature. So I think you're correct in that why don't we use this technology, this opportunity to go, you know what, this is the new routine how do we create more employment and more flexibility and build off that? Because realistically, I mean, you know, my only, in my own case, I mean, my work life is I get out of bed and I walk down the hallway and out the back and work in my study and, and have breakfast and just repeat the same process all day. Um, why aren't we doing that for everybody? Mm. Yes. Yes. I think that's right. Look, I, I, I think that there's um, um, a real opportunity here uh, I think one of the challenges we all face going forward is, is around sort of um, we all sort of have in the back of our, our minds, you know, uh, we, one, we'll reconnect with teams. We'll, it's about being really smart about um, when we get together, how we get together and what's its purpose. So there are certainly aspects, I think, where meeting face-to-face -face, um, is still really important. It's still really important in terms of building a cohesive workforce uh, and, a, and an agile, adaptive workforce. But equally so, a lot of the day-to-day -day doing stuff doesn't need to be done in an office environment. In fact, you're less productive because of the distractions that can occur. So, yes, I absolutely think that um, uh, for all people, including people with disability, I, I think it's just interesting that this will be an opportunity where if those barriers to work have been around some of the, the physical access barriers, um, as well as, um, you know, uh, particular needs that are difficult to meet in a workplace that can be met in your home environment, um, then certainly I think there's some great opportunities to, for people to uh, really take courage and that hold of that. And I'd love to see, you know, going forward, um, some of our, our businesses and our organisations making it really clear in their recruitment um, that they encourage applications from people who see working from home as, you know, as, as part of the mix of that job. Yeah, it, it's really, I mean, it gets reinforced to me every day. I, I'm doing a project in Africa at the moment um, with uh, different disability organisations and I'm not there mm. <laughs> um, and I don't have to go there. And that's the, that's the, the really interesting con contrast for me is that I don't, you don't have to travel somewhere to do the work. Mm. You just have to support people to do the work and you can do it using technology. That's right. So 
This has been really interesting, Jeannie. Um, is there any final words you'd like to add to our discussion? <laughs> look, look. I think it's probably just um, if I, if people haven't had a look at our participant employment strategy, I encourage them to have a look. Um, you know, there's a number of focus areas there, uh, which essentially look at sort of you know helping participants think about work, building plans that are really going to support participants, encouraging an innovative provider market. Of course, um, uh, the NDIS needs to be leading the way in terms of as an employer of people with disability and doing that really well. Um, as well. So there are a whole lot of things in there that I'd encourage people to look at to understand. Um, we now have an economic outcomes branch within the agency, which is a significant move this year, which shows the, the focus and the intention that we are giving to this. So watch out for the rest of 2020s. There'll be some more information coming out around employment with NDIS participants and how people can use their funds. Um, and certainly um, we've committed to a number of um, outcomes over the next three years. So um, keep us on our toes. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to that. And <laughs> thank you very much for your time today, Jeannie. It's a pleasure. Thanks very much, Peter. Not a problem. Have a good day. Bye -bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that was Jeannie Hodges, and she's, as she just said, watch this space and keep them on their toes. Thank you for participating today.